Welcome to Grandiose Grammar. I'm Aoife, a grammar enthusiast and a lecturer at Phillips University at Marburg. This week, I've got part two of an interview with my friend Anna, who is also an educator. We talk about how COVID-19 has impacted our teaching and what the future might hold for educators. Other topics we touch on in this episode are how Anna's experience of learning German and seeing other instructors in action has impacted her teaching. And we also got into the subject of hedging, which took us down another language rabbit hole. What do you have to say about the the COVID teaching experience? Um, I think from a very personal perspective, it's not as bad as I feared. Um... I think I know a lot of colleagues and yeah, other people in education um, yeah, were very horrified ourselves at the prospect of having to deliver material this way. Um, uh, my personal experience is that in, in my organisation, I'd say we're, if I'm being really honest, we're probably only going halfway in terms of using the potential of digital learning, and maybe even that's generous. Um, we're using online platforms, um, but we haven't changed a lot of what we do. And I think um, for smaller classes, for my adult one-on-one duo learning things, I think in a lot of ways it, it, it has been quite seamless because we use technology, we have whiteboard sharing, material sharing, interactive things where you can recreate uh, a classroom environment. And I feel like we do retain a lot of the quality and our approach to learning um, works the same way. Um, larger groups, and I mean, for me, my, my large group of eight this is where I feel like um, the quality deteriorates in ways that I don't know that we've got a, a workaround for because we rely on pair work, on small group work to maximise our student talking time and those interactive activities. And uh, depending on which um, video conferencing software you use, there are some that offer breakout rooms, some that don't. And so that's that's been a challenge, I think, to really feel like people are participating. Um I think my correction isn't as hard as what it is in real life. Um, I'm very um, physical in how I teach. And I think my students I've been working with, they can sit, they can look at my face if we're in the same room and they know they've made a mistake. I use a lot of gestures back over my shoulder to indicate that they should have said, use the past tense or the future, or they've got something around the wrong way. I'm wildly gesturing at you for here. Um, and often on a screen, I don't know whether I'm the person that's big or smaller or a lot of that is lost. Um, so, and I mean, you, you work around it, you learn to call on people by name in what would have been a more organic group atmosphere where I would have brought people in with a gesture or a look to participate in the discussion. I think there's a lot of possibilities with digital learning that we haven't got to yet. I think we've kind of, we've moved our existing learning online in a reasonably effective way. What we haven't done is harness the potential that digital has to take things further. I would say it's like the difference between digitization and digitalization. We've digitized, we haven't really digitalized. By that, do you mean uh, digitized? I've put our material online, but it's not it hasn't been adapted for this platform. 
I read a great uh, article from SAP about the difference between digitize and digitalize. But this is the thing. So, um, you know, the, the, we have PDFs of um, material that would be printed and we can use a, a screen share, screen drawing to make that interactive. But the material itself isn't inherently interactive in how it's been programmed. And I think digitalization is really about doing things in different ways and utilizing the technology to do things in ways that you couldn't have before. And so what we've done is quite well like simulated a classroom environment. What we haven't done is, is change something. And I mean, I guess considering how rapidly we, and on what a scale we had to do it, you could make a reasonable argument that we couldn't really have expected, been expected to be much further along than what we are at this particular point. But if you're looking at the long term, I think there's definitely a lot of work to do reimagining the possibilities. I think a lot of us are going to be dipping into uh, instructional design and that sort of thing to see to see what we can eke out of this digital era. Um, I agree with you. I don't think it's enough to just say, oh, it's digital here. Have my PDFs or my worksheets. Mm. It needs to be interactive and it needs to be engaging. Yeah. The engaging part is the bit that's difficult when you're not in person. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you, you have that person who started typing and hasn't muted and then like, <laughs> you know that they're, they're only half with you. And I mean, maybe that circles back a bit before when I kind of talked about people using mobile phones in a room and, you know, really engaging that person and bringing them back. And that, that is a lot harder in a digital space. It sounds like your place of employment has gone for the synchronous method. So you're teaching at the same time that you normally would have and you're meeting in person, which is completely the opposite of my experience with digital teaching because our, our courses are, are large. Um, many of my classes have upwards of 20, 25, sometimes 30 students. We're teaching asynchronously. And that's been very challenging to try and create material that's interesting and that students can work through mostly on their own and not need to be supported in the way that they would in a classroom or to be supported in a way that's helpful for everyone, even though I'm not there while they're doing whatever the worksheets are or the quizzes or working their way through the online material. And I think I still have lots to learn about how to use all of these digital tools that we have, but also how to keep people engaged. There are some good books about like gamification and things like that out there. I think that's a really interesting frontier for education. I think gamification is, it's been a buzzword, hasn't it? Mm. And I wonder if we're just contributing to the phenomenon of edutainment. Mm. So here's a soundbite, have a little bit of fun with it, but there's not necessarily a great deal of depth to it. And in our sort of consumer society where it's sort of, I can have anything that I want whenever I want. And then I expect that with my education as well. I think this can be very, very, very tricky. Mm. I worry about edutainment and I also worry about how tiny people's attention spans are. I guess it maybe it depends. I mean, gamification doesn't necessarily have to all be bells and whistles. It can be about like, I guess, accountability and competing against yourself and and different aspects like that that can be brought into kind of motivating and engaging people. Um, but I do agree. I mean, as, as a language trainer, I guess I'm competing against these apps that have essentially done that to language learning. You know, what, what am I offering that Duolingo isn't? 
Well, you're offering, I would imagine, a, a cultural experience. Yeah. So something like Duolingo can't offer the same sort of experience in terms of your lived experience. It's yeah. not got all of the, the other stuff that humans bring to a classroom. Yeah. But I guess I feel like this is the challenge because often when people start to say, okay, how do we make things digital and interactive and engaging? I guess one of the most, like the first and most obvious things is the route that a lot of these apps have taken. And say, okay, well, what I offer in normal terms is very different to that. It's it's the face-to-face training. It's my cultural experience. And so how do I then convert that into a a digital interactive experience what kind of challenges do you think we're facing in education um i think what you mentioned just before about shortened attention spans i think that's a that's a challenge i think particularly among younger people um that tendency to constantly be multitasking to receive things in small bite-sized pieces like um and I mean, to some extent, I'd have to include myself in this when I think about my own news consumption through social media and different things. Outside of our formal education, there are a generation of people that have become very accustomed to only digesting bite-sized pieces of things. And I think that's a big challenge as an educator, you know, to say, you know, to what extent do we adapt to this? To what extent do we kind of hold fast and, and say that this is a value that we're imparting? I mean, in my line of work, working for a, a language school and particularly moving online, our point of differentiation to existing online products is then slimmer than what it was before. Um, you can do one-on-one tutoring through a lot of websites with a live person in real time um, more cheaply than what we we are offering it and in a sense particularly in the harder lockdown phases this is in the core of what we're offering is a person video video teaching you um i mean of course i i would argue and i do believe that often what we offer is a more professional um better product because we're we've got materials we've got programs that we're using um i mean as a learner i have access to some of these other platforms and i think there you have a very uh, big disparity in the quality depending on on the teacher because you get some really amazing really motivated um, educators on these websites and then you get a lot of people that aren't and there's no quality control Um, but I think um, from a sales perspective of like bringing people in really imparting that difference I think that's a big challenge moving forward like why should someone pick us when they can get online and someone from anywhere in the world could teaching them the idea that we can completely digitize or digitalize education isn't new this is something that's been debated about and discussed for probably the last 20 years i'm definitely in the camp of you can never take the human element out of education you can have the best online materials in the world you can have excellent um, books and worksheets but I think the, per- the thing that makes a class or that makes a learning experience is the people involved in it. Yes, um, and more so than ever with language learning, because for me, the point of learning a language is to communicate. 
I mean, I'm sure there's a niche group of people out there that are saying, yes, well, I only want to learn English to read the documentation for my niche scientific profession and I don't care about anything else. But I think for the vast majority of people, you know, a language is about connecting with, yeah, with other people. Uh, whether that is in, orally, whether that is in written form, you know, it, it's about making that connection. And so I think your experience of learning a language has to also have a foundation in, in those connections with other people. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so for that reason, um, I think that's the reason we're still going. Like, we're, we're, you know, my company still runs because enough people realize that. I think, you know, there isn't a digital product out there on the market currently that does offer that, that I'm aware of. I think there are some rare learners who are capable of studying alone, doing the work on their own and becoming proficient in a language without very much personal input from an outsider. Mm. But they're the exception and not the norm. Yeah. I think it depends for what purpose you want language as well. Okay, maybe you can learn that way, but I think you would have to be very disciplined and give yourself a very wide-ranging curriculum. Because, I mean, at my level, a lot of what people are learning is idiomatic expressions. How does this language look in the real world? And so I think, you know, maybe there are people that uh, could learn on their own through a textbook or through a digital platform and... Maybe if their purpose is for reading or writing reports and they're not really interacting, that would work. But I think it would be very hard to get the kind of multimedia, real life language learning experience on your own. I think it doesn't exist yet. It might never exist. Hopefully. (laughs) Otherwise we'll be redundant. Yeah, or we just have to be involved in building it. (laughs) Because I think a lot of it is the, the little things like that. And I know even as a learner, I um, have been yeah, doing a group German class for a couple of years. I, I stopped um, in the last six months due to the, the COVID situation. And I guess it was about, for me, it was about the interactive element and you know the, the relationships um, and also about the accountability. I think that having that self-discipline and I'd been trying to teach myself German with yeah varying degrees of success before that and I think it was that dedication to just going to this group course for a couple of years every two nights a week every week that really made a huge difference and it didn't it didn't feel like I made a big effort okay sometimes like hauling my ass there after work <laughs> was exhausting but I didn't feel like I I sat down and I, I stu- like studied very much and I feel like it was a very passive immersion way of, of learning. I only had to do my, my small homework exercises um, and it was very fun. I, yeah, went along to this group, you know, a lot of the time it was a very good mix of people, you know, chatted away, had a lot of fun, learnt, learnt a few things and over time it, it added up. How has your learning experience in a foreign language informed your teaching well it has a lot I guess um particularly because I was learning at the same place that I work at um and so it like I I said at the start it's often very difficult to get feedback from colleagues because you don't see each other so then obviously you know it was a different language department but I was essentially watching my colleagues 
absolutely um you got a sense of oh okay like this is why this aspect is so important and I think you know really getting that feeling of how much repetition is needed because I think particularly at a low level I know and particularly when you're you're new to it often as a trainer you feel like you've run this exercise or you've practiced this and oh god it must be getting boring now and so I think for me it was so important to sit there and to be like oh god I know everyone in the room has said this sentence almost exactly the same way but I'm still sweating on my turn and like actually like the needing to say it myself and the engagement and realizing that that repetition is needed and that it's nowhere near as boring for the students as what it is for you. So I think on a, on a small level, really getting that feeling for how much repetition is needed, how, how one should break up the time in terms of different activities and how that feels on a student side, that's been really invaluable. And I think also, you know, it's a big thing for us. We talk about student talking time and teacher talking time, reducing the teacher talking time. And I think I really internalized that in a, a new way. I think I've seen 10 or 12 of my colleagues now. So over the years, I've had different kind of permanent course instructors. I've had subs when people have been sick and on holiday and trainer changes. And really, I think it's really helped me to know, okay, is this anecdote really necessary? I think I talk a lot less in my classes because I've seen how boring it is. And I can tell <laughs> when a trainer talks too much and, you know, when people are actually itching to talk and, and give their perspective. And I think it's really made me say, okay, you know, there are times when giving an anecdote makes something more memorable. It makes it more interesting, but it should always be highly relevant. It should always be a gateway into the students sharing their perspectives and, and their thoughts on this topic. And so I've learned a lot from colleagues that I think are better trainers than I uh, and I've also learned what not to do. Do you have a personal philosophy of teaching? I mean, I guess, I don't know how I would like put it into a sentence. I think different aspects of what I would call my philosophy, I guess, are things that we've already talked yeah. about. I think, you know, making it fun, keeping it real and relevant, I think are really important to me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, my colleagues or my boss, you know, joke about hearing laughter from... <laughs> In the room that I'm in. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, keeping it real and keeping it fun, I think are, are really important elements for me. I think one of the important things as an educator is always to be learning something new yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and I think particularly um, viewing language as a living thing. Um, I think that's something that's really important to me and I think not necessarily seeing it as something that's very static and I think particularly having an openness to how language mutates particularly in international contexts and that's also something that's quite interesting because I think the traditional approach is okay we're either learning British or American English and this is how a native speaker does it um, and, you know, I'm training people that aren't actually using their English with native speakers. They're using their English to talk to Spanish, French, Italians, Chinese, Brazilians um, and say, OK, you know, are there expressions, are there ways of putting things that's a kind of an industry normal? I mean, we've got the European Central Bank here in Frankfurt. 
And I mean, ECB English is almost its own dialect at times. And I think recognizing that and saying, okay, maybe this level of politeness or level of small talk or the way I would put something as a native speaker isn't actually something that I need to drum into these people because that's not how they're using English. They're not going to go and sit in a a medium-sized business in Surrey and email people. I recall reading a BBC article, and if I find it, I will link it in the blog entry, and it was about how non-native speakers of English who speak English to one another understand each other better than non-native speakers of English speaking to native English speakers. They lose less in the intercultural communication if all of the people interacting in the conversation are non-native speakers. Yeah. Whereas if you pit non-native speakers of English against native speakers of English, you're more likely to have more confusion. Yeah, I've I've read something similar, um, but about how native speakers give worse presentations because there's more... Yeah. Fluff. <laughs> I was going with like verbiage or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Use, use the better word. <laughs> Basically, fluff. Um, you know, there's all, yeah, it's littered with unnecessary things, with phrasal verbs, with a lot of words that other people don't understand or don't, doesn't really contribute. Whereas, and I mean, I guess it's probably even the same for us if we're presenting in German, that we're much more to the point and there's much less fluff. Thankfully, German is also far more direct and you don't need to hedge as much. Yeah, Germans are quite happy for you to just tell them how it is. Yeah. Yeah, that hedging, things like that. And I think traditionally, I think there's quite a lot of snobbery from that Anglosphere in a sense of lack of compromise. And I think the value... And I mean, I hope this is something that's changing or that has already changed. But I think this idea that other people should learn to speak like us rather than meeting them in the middle. And even with things like hedging, it's like this kind of snobbery, you know, continental Europeans are too direct. They need to soften themselves rather than England, the Anglosphere saying, actually, maybe we need to be a bit more direct when we're dealing with foreigners. And I think um, particularly from an, an Anglo perspective, um, we very much put the onus on foreigners to change to meet us rather than having an openness to meeting in the middle. Saying, okay, maybe they need to hedge a bit more, but I also need to be more direct. Yeah, if I think about some of my students even, and they're fairly advanced learners of English, some of them might not get the subtlety of, oh, it's cold in here. That's a message for, could you please close the window? (laughs) Or, "Mm, smells a bit funny in here. Isn't a comment on the actual smell in the room. It's, we need to air the room. Yeah. And that sort of subtlety is often lost on a non-native speaker. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... I mean, obviously, to some extent, you do have to impart these kind of cultural nuances. And I did have one experience with a student from the insurance industry who was showing me some emails that he'd had with a colleague in the UK. And the colleague in the UK had requested something and he hadn't sent it. And there was a follow-up email. And for me as an English speaker, this follow-up email that came from the UK office to my German student, I was thinking like oh god this guy's really pissed off um so I said oh have you sent this yet and he was kind of like oh yeah no it's not that important I'm going to send it next week and I think his perception based on the directness 
from of yeah what he'd received from the UK it wasn't an escalation and it wasn't there wasn't that sense of urgency whereas for me as a native speaker I was like oh I I think he really wants this now <laughs> Um, so obviously in this case, it is very useful to kind of, to go into not only how to hedge things and sound polite themselves, but how to read between the lines and interpret these things. And that's something that you can't do online. <laughs> no. You can't do that with something that just is designed to teach you just grammar or just vocabulary, because that's a subtlety that you only pick up if you, if there's an actual interaction between two people. I think even just little things, like when I ask a student to read aloud, I'll often say, you know, Andreas, would you like to take the next paragraph? And for me, that would you like to is a direction. And I mean, sometimes that does become like a discussion point or they'll make a kind of little comment like, oh, I wouldn't like to, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> and I guess this kind of thing that you wouldn't get in a room of native speakers because they would interpret that as an un unquestionable direction. So obviously little, little things like that come into play even without being an intentional uh, point of a lesson. What skills would you like to develop over the next few years? I think some of the, the digital skills that we've talked about, I think that's something that I'd really like to, um, particularly when it comes to, yeah, preparing, preparing lessons and adapting the pedagogical methods to the online. I think that's something that I'd really like to do. I think that's something we're all going to have to do. Yeah. Do you think that we're going to go back to the way that our classrooms were before the pandemic? Or do you think that we're going to see that there was a very clear before and after? Ooh. That's hard to say. Um, I think there's a higher chance of it happening in my sphere of language learning than in yours because I think you're dealing with much bigger groups of people um you know I've had some one-on-one -on -one lessons resume you know my small groups the potential for them to resume in a very similar way maybe sitting a little bit further apart or yeah it would be a lot easier to slip back into our old ways I think than what it will be for you know university type courses I think for university, it's going to be anachronistic to think that people will be able to just show up and sit in a classroom and be prepared to do that because the way the world is changing means that young people often have to work in addition to studying. Mm -hmm. Not all of the young people who are at university come from a position of privilege where their parents are able to afford to keep them in full-time education. So I think that we're going to see more asynchronous learning yeah, and I guess a lot of um, tertiary institutions are offering people the option of being completely online, doing blended or coming in. And so I think that idea that moving forward, it will stay that way and courses that were previously like only available as face-to-face -face courses will have blended or completely online options. And I would imagine you'd be seeing people that might come in and do a week of I was going to call it presence training, but that's very Denglish of me, isn't it? That's okay. <laughs> but I, I would imagine you might have people that are doing your course online for a semester and then they actually come in and you have them there in person for an intensive week at the end or for a couple of days 
on campus. And so then these people, they're actually not going to be in the local area. You could actually have people that are learning at a distance. I would imagine that the, the boundary between what courses that were online degrees and open universities and your traditional universities will become a lot more blurred. I think the trend will definitely be to some form of blended learning, because if you think about the, the line of work that we're in, a lot of it is repetition. Mm. So the mechanics of it, you could, I think, could be turned into some sort of online e-learning element. Yeah. But I'm still firmly of the belief that the human element is really important so that we will continue to have this personal interaction with our students. Yeah. I think maybe particularly at a higher level. I mean, when I think about, you know, when you really are learning the grammar at an, an A1, A2 level, you know, it is more of that repetition. I mean, often for higher level students, I feel like my job is about building fluency and confidence. It's about bringing passive vocabulary into active vocabulary. Um, and, you know, it's correcting grammar mistakes as they happen, identifying where we might have to do a slightly deeper dive and reteach a bit. But the approach isn't, I guess, to come in and, and teach grammar. And it's, you know, and these are the people that half of it, it's about the accountability and the interaction because it's someone who says, okay, I don't have the motivation to learn from a book. If I watch my English TV series, it doesn't actually prepare me for when I'm in the hot seat giving that presentation. And so what they have is, you know, an hour, hour and a half per week where they have to explain their pro their current project, their processes, what's going on in their company to me and bringing that vocabulary from a passive place to an active place. And I think that's something that's quite hard to simulate. Next time, I'll be back with some grammar-based content. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, feel free to contact me via the contact form on grandiosegrammar.com or over on Twitter. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.